Well, as we turn now to God's Word, uh, we have four texts to read. We're going to read first from uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. John will read that for us. Uh, this main text that we have this morning is the, the story of what Christians traditionally call the transfiguration, or basically the idea is it's when Jesus went up on the mountain and he so encountered God's glory that his face changed, that his clothing changed, uh, that everything around him changed. And so that's what we're going to read about this morning. And then our next two texts, both from Exodus, both speak to other times in the history that's recorded in the Bible when people encountered the glory of God. And so we're going to see some similarities between how Jesus was transformed and how they saw the glory of God even before the time of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, in 2 Corinthians, we see how this glory relates to us today, how even today we're supposed to behold God's glory and be changed by it. And so John will read for us from Luke 9, and then Brian from Exodus 24 and 34, and then Davis from Exodus 40, and then Katie from 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 12 to 18. Let me pray now that God would open our hearts and open our eyes to understand his word. God, it is remarkable that you have allowed man to see your glory and live, and yet you have, and so we thank you for this also, God. And Lord, we know that as your word teaches that most often, Lord, you reveal yourself to us by your word. And yet, Lord, we have to have eyes to see and we have to have ears to hear. And so, God, I do pray that you would come now, that you would give us those spiritual eyes, Lord, that you would give us those spiritual ears so that we might indeed hear your word and see your glory as it is. And would you help me especially, God, I pray, as I proclaim your word, Lord, to make your glory clear and manifest, God, so that everyone here, everyone who hears this preaching of your word, indeed beholds your glory, God, and is transformed by it. Lord, you are our only hope. Your word is our only absolute truth. And so, God, we set our eyes on you now. We set our ears upon you now. Lord, would you speak to us in power, I pray, in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Luke 9, 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Exodus twenty-four, twelve through 18. 
The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. And then Exodus thirty four twenty nine. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Well, beloved, as we come before God's word, we come before uh, deep things indeed. This, this story of Jesus going up on a mountain and being changed in every way. His face, his clothing, the people around him, the cloud. And we're going to look at each of these things this morning. But before we do, I want us to, to see this in context of our own situation, of your own daily life. And I think that one thing that this story especially speaks to is how one of the biggest paradoxes of human existence, if not the biggest paradox of human existence, and is how it can seem that we ourselves were made for two different worlds. We clearly know that we were made for this earthly place because we have bodies and we hunger, we have eyes to see and ears to hear, and so yes, it's clear that we are physical beings. 
And yet every human being also experiences a strange dissatisfaction with earthly things. It seems like nothing in the world can fill us. And yet if we were made for this world, then why does it seem like nothing in this world can ever satisfy us? And after all, cows and sheep and and dogs, they seem happy with their lives. They never ask the, the why question underneath everything that's around us. And yet we human beings, strangely, even though we exist in this world and have needs for all the physical things of this world, never seem totally content or satisfied in this world. I wonder what these words make you think of in your own life. Can you remember a time, or maybe you're in a time right now, where you seem strangely dissatisfied with your life, and maybe every outward thing was going well? Maybe your body was healthy, and you had money in the bank, and your family was good, and everything seemed all right, and yet you still had this deep dissatisfaction with how things were. I'm sure all of us have had moments like that. Even you you kids that are here with us this morning, I'm sure you've experienced times in your life when you've been unhappy about something and maybe you can't really put your finger on why. You just know you're not feeling good. Again, even though you've had enough to eat and you've slept and all these things, yet you're still not happy. All of us who are human beings know what it is like to have this sort of dissatisfaction or angst about earthly things. And the reality is that we human beings are indeed strung up, as it were, between two worlds. Like a man who has ropes tied to his wrist and his ankles and he's being pulled in one direction on one side and the other direction on the other side, that's what it is like to be human. On the one hand, we are being pulled toward this earthly, physical world. And we know the satisfaction and joy that comes from enjoying earthly things. And yet, even when we know the joy of this world, at the same time, we know that we're being pulled in the opposite direction. That there's something that making us, giving us this gnawing hunger for spiritual things, for things that are not physical. And so our hearts continually remind us that we cannot be merely earthly beings. And now for millennia of human history, this paradox was unbridgeable. It was simply man's cruel fate to have to long for heavenly joys and yet have no way of fulfilling them. We were like that ancient King Sisyphus who was doomed to push that boulder up the hill, only that Every time he nears the top of the hill, he loses his grip on it and it rolls back down. And so he has to go back down to the bottom of the hill and start pushing up the hill once again. Again, for millennia and even for many people now, that is what human existence is like. It's like having this hunger, this thirst that cannot be satisfied. So you're pushing this boulder up the hill, up the hill, and all of a sudden you lose your grip on it and you realize once again how empty you are and how you do not know how to resolve your own hunger, your own spiritual thirst. And so it is into the midst of this unbridgeable gap, this unsolvable problem that Jesus steps in. And yes, 
we as gospel-believing Christians especially will recognize that it is by Jesus' death and resurrection that this gap is finally crossed. And yet, this morning, I actually want to look at one step prior to his cross. I want to look at how Jesus bridges this gap even in his very being. Even in the fact that Jesus himself was fully man, and yet he was also fully God. In other words, Jesus was the very first person and was the only person who ever lived who was not, like us, torn between earth and heaven. He was the only one who could live fully and completely in both. He was fully man. And he knew what it was like to have physical needs and he appreciated the physical needs that he had and he gave way to those things for sleep and for hunger and for everything else. And yet in the midst of that, he also knew perfect satisfaction with his heavenly father because he was one with his heavenly father. And so he was perfectly man and he was perfectly God. He did not have this boulder that he was trying to push up the hill only to never be able to reach the top. He was already perfectly there. And the broader point for us in this that I want you to see this morning is that because Jesus exists perfectly in both realms, it means that he is able to relate perfectly to us on the one hand and to be a perfect mediator between us and God on the other hand. He is able to relate to us perfectly as human beings. And he is able to satisfy our earthly need for companionship because he himself is truly human. There is nothing about Jesus that is beyond our reach. He is comprehensible to us in the same way that your spouse or your child or your best friend or your parents are comprehensible. He was fully man. We can know him as a human being. And yet, Jesus was also fully God. That is, he is able to satisfy that longing that we have within us that goes beyond anything that the earth can satisfy. He is so far beyond us. He is so infinite that he alone is able to fill that infinite void that each of us know. And that fundamentally is what I believe the text for this morning wants to show us. It wants to show us that Jesus is a man just as we are, that we can relate to him on human terms as a human person. He can be your companion. He can be your joy. He can be your friend. And yet this text also shows us that he is God. That he is someone who is so far high and above us that we do not now even have the capacity to comprehend his greatness and his majesty. In other words, the the person of Jesus and only the person of Jesus solves this riddle of human existence. In his humanity, Jesus is able to love you as only a person can love you. And yet in his divinity, he is able to satisfy you as only God can satisfy you. 
It is truly as the scripture says that only in Jesus Christ do we find rest for our souls. That is why Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He will know you as a human being and he will also satisfy you as God. So my message this morning will follow these two tracks. We're going to look on the one hand at how this passage shows us the humanity of Jesus and how he can love us and serve us just as a human being can. And on the other hand, this passage is going to show us the deity of Jesus, how he can satisfy us as only God can. But before I come to those two points, I do want to set up this passage in the context of Luke overall just to show you how I get to these conclusions. The the basic question we have been asking through this whole sermon series is the simple question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we've asked this question because this is the question that Luke, this gospel writer himself, is posing. We've seen it in smaller ways throughout the early chapters of Luke, but this question now in chapter 9 is coming to something of a climax. In this chapter, in chapter 9, we see back in verses 7 through 9 that King Herod was asking this question of who is Jesus. And so Luke 9, starting in verse 7, says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So you can hear there Herod asking, who is this about whom I hear such things? And then after the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in verses 18 to 20, we see Jesus himself pose this question. In Luke 9, starting in verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And in verse 20, Jesus says to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And so Jesus himself is posing this question to his disciples and consequently to us, Who do we say that he is? Who is Jesus Christ? Now at the same time that Jesus is asking this question of who is he, and others are asking this question of who is he, The Gospel of John is also at a turning point where Jesus is going from this time where he is introducing people to himself to where he is setting out on his mission toward the cross. And so we saw in verse 22, Jesus said for the first time that he will have to be killed and that he will rise from the dead, although his disciples didn't understand it. And then we see in this passage itself that when Jesus speaks, To Moses and Elijah, he speaks to them of his departure and of his death in Jerusalem. And then finally, toward the end of this chapter, and indeed where our journey through Luke will end, in Luke 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so we see this big turning point 
in Luke's gospel where all of a sudden Jesus is going from simply proclaiming the good news and doing good works to actually setting his face toward Jerusalem and going to the cross. And so at this turning point in Luke's gospel, and indeed this turning point in Jesus' life, it is critically important for people to begin to understand who Jesus is. Is he simply a a crazy man whose lies and all these things are about to catch up to him so that he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem? Or is he simply the the human Messiah whose plan is about to fail as he's been crucified in Jerusalem? Or is he, as I said, both God and man? So that his life is not going to be taken away from him. But he, in his power, will willingly give it up for your sake and for mine. And so for all these reasons, we see this question coming to a climax in the passage before us now. Who is Jesus Christ? And for that reason, I believe in this passage, we get the clearest manifestation yet of who Jesus Christ really is. As he goes up on this mountain with Peter and James and John. And as he is transformed in the presence of his Father. And we are able to see for the most Clearly, we have been able to see it yet that he truly is both fully man and fully God. And so let's begin in this passage by looking at how this passage indeed shows us that Jesus was fully man and what this means for us. So this passage reveals to us in numerous small ways that Jesus was indeed fully man. Now, oftentimes, I think if, if we were to hear some ancient story about someone going up on a mountain and being transformed in some way, people might just wave that away as saying, oh, this person must have been divine in some way or not really human. And indeed, in the centuries after the death of Jesus, many people would say that Jesus was never truly man. He maybe appeared to be a man, but he was really just a God all along. And yet this passage makes very clear that Jesus relates to human beings as a human being. When he goes up on the mountain, he takes Peter and James and John with him. And he journeys up the mountain with them. He is a man just like them. He doesn't somehow appear on the top of the mountain and everybody else has to journey up. No, he journeys up with Peter and James and John. And so he goes up on the mountain. Then it tells us that he he takes time to pray. In verse 28, he went up on the mountain to pray. And so Jesus, just like any other man, has to set aside time to set his face intentionally toward God. This doesn't just happen automatically for him. He turns to God in prayer. In verse 29, when it begins to tell us about the transformation that Jesus undergoes, it talks about how he has an appearance in his face and how he's wearing clothes. And even though they are transformed, the fact remains that he indeed has a face like every other man. He wears clothes just like every other man. And then in his heightened spiritual state in verse 30, we see that he is met by two other common men by Moses and Elijah. And we all know that neither Moses nor Elijah were divine beings. They were men, just like you and me. And he meets with them on top of this mountain. 
And then, as if to emphasize this point, that Jesus really is a man who can be seen and touched and felt just like every other person, when Peter wakes up and he sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah, he thinks that they're so real that he says, I need to build a tent for each one of you so that you have a place to live, so that you have shelter over your heads. He recognizes that these are human beings standing before him. And then finally, at the very end, in verse 36, even after all this happens, Jesus is found standing alone there by himself. Again, the man Jesus is fully on display in this passage. And in this way, because we know that Jesus is fully human, we also see in this passage how he is able to relate to us perfectly as humans. In a moment, I'm going to go in detail on how this passage reveals Jesus to be God, but suffice it to say for a moment, this this passage does reveal to us Jesus in his divine glory. And yet, despite the fact that Jesus is in the midst of this divine glory, he does not, therefore, have to distance himself from fellow human beings. All these other humans who are around him are able to remain near to him despite the fact that he is transformed into this glorious being. Again, he brings Peter, James, and John up the mountain with him. And indeed, he's transformed in such a a humble way that they are even able to remain sleeping while Jesus is transformed into this glorious state. Now, in the Old Testament, this sort of encounter with the glory of God would have been unthinkable. Encountering God's glory is not the sort of thing that you just sleep through, that you suddenly wake up and find, oh, there God is. He has appeared to me. But Jesus is so humble, he is so human, that he is able to be transformed into this glorious God. And yet Peter and James and John are able to remain asleep. And only then they wake up and they see Jesus in his glory. And this in itself is a small parable to us that how is it that we see the glory of God? It is not by our own efforts, by our own works. It is by resting in Jesus Christ. And then through Jesus Christ and his work, we get to see the glory of God. We see that even being transformed into his glorious image. Jesus still meets with Moses and Elijah. They are able to be present with him. They are able to be near him, even in his glory. And perhaps most significantly, in verse 34 of our passage, we see that a cloud comes upon the mountain and it covers the mountain. And yet, even when this cloud comes, Moses and Elijah are able to be there, and the disciples are able to be there. And yet, compare this again to what we saw in the Old Testament, that when the cloud of the glory of God came, mankind was not able to stay in it. And so in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, it says, "...the cloud covered the tent of meeting." And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see how Jesus in his humanity is able to relate the glory of God to us in a way that we can now handle, that we can come into the presence of. 
Even Solomon, after the temple was completed in 1 Kings 8, we read again about this cloud of glory. It said, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so you can see how in the Old Testament, when God was present, when God's cloud came down, humans had to exit. They had to get out of the way. They could not stand in the presence of God. And we did see in Exodus 34 that Moses was the one exception to that. And yet even Moses, it says, has a go up on the mountain and he waited six days and then he went a little closer and he had to wait two more days and then he went into the cloud and he waited six more days and only then did God's glory come down. And in the rest of the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, we learn that Moses had to turn his back to God so that he would not see God in his face. And yet, clearly in this passage, Peter is able to see the glory. In verse 32, it says, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And so Jesus was able to be a man that could reveal to us the glory of God such that we could behold it and not have to run away from it. God's glory is so powerful, is so pure, is so holy that wicked man cannot be in the presence of God and live. That is one of the basic messages of the Old Testament. And so here when we come to Luke 9 and we see Jesus in his glory, his face shining, his clothes shining, the cloud resting upon him, we expect that everyone will have to flee. And instead, what we see is Jesus, who is fully human, is able to present God's glory to us in such a way that we can now stand in the presence of God. The limited and finite can now come into contact with the infinite, and we can live. And so in all these ways, we see that Jesus is able to relate God's glory to us as a human being. And it says that even Moses, when he came down from the mountain, he had to put the veil over his face because the people of Israel did not want to see this shining face of Moses that revealed to them the glory of God. And yet in the face of Jesus, we can all behold both grace and truth and we can behold him in his glory and we can live. And so in all this, beloved, what I want you to see is that Jesus, as a human being, is able to love you and care for you and relate God's glory to you in a way that only a human being can, in a way that you can understand, in a way that you can appreciate and draw near. But of course, Jesus was not merely a human. Jesus was also God. Jesus was fully divine. And this passage reveals to us the divinity of Jesus and primarily the following four ways. The first way that I think this passage reveals to us the divinity of Jesus is that Jesus attains this glorious state in a mere moment and not through some long and careful process. In other words, this this passage shows us that the transformation that Jesus underwent was not the result of works that he had to do or something he had to earn. Rather, it's as if it was something that was always under wraps and was just 
waiting to burst out. It says again that he went up to the mountain and he simply began to pray. And then verse 29 says, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So unlike Moses, who only has the shining face, because he came up in the presence of God and he saw God and then God was reflected from him, no, Jesus has this brilliance within himself, this glory of God is already within Jesus Christ. His face alters of its own nature. His clothing alters of its own nature. This is the substance of the glory of God. And so, in this way, we see, first of all, that part of Jesus' very nature was this glorious divinity, the glory of God. And the fact that Jesus does have this shining face and the clothing and the cloud and it's all right upon him and he does not fear, he does not back away, shows us that he is home. He is in the presence of God. The second way that this passage shows us that Jesus is truly divine is that he is attended to by Moses and Elijah. Now, the significance of Moses and Elijah coming to him, I believe, is that Moses and Elijah were the preeminent prophets of the Old Testament. Moses, of course, was the prophet who gave the law to Israel. But Elijah was the the first and the prototype of all future prophets after the kingdom of Israel was started. And so in this way, Moses and Elijah are symbols, as it were, of the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament for the Jewish people is referred to as the law and the prophets. Again, Moses symbolizing the law and Elijah symbolizing the prophets. And so by these two attending to Jesus, what this is telling us is that the whole message of the Old Testament, the whole work of God in human history up till now is centered on this one person, Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ indeed has this significance, if if all glory is going to Jesus Christ, then the only conclusion we can draw is that Jesus Christ is God. The third way that we see this passage point to the divinity of Jesus is we see how Jesus in this passage fulfills numerous Old Testament signs of the work in the presence of God. And so we've already mentioned the reality of the cloud. The cloud of the glory of God was mentioned in Exodus and in Numbers and in Kings and in First Chronicles. Wherever God's presence comes down, God's presence comes in a cloud. And here is the cloud descending upon Jesus and these three disciples as he goes up on the mountain. So this tells us that the presence of Jesus is the presence of God. The fact that Jesus' face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Again, refers us back to Moses and what happened to him in the presence of God. The fact that Jesus went up on the mountaintop to pray reminds us again of how Moses went up on the mountaintop to meet with God. And here Jesus is going up on the mountaintop and he is meeting with God. The fact that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, just as when Moses went up on the mountain, he took the elders of Israel with him, again tells us that Jesus is fulfilling. He is the, he is the fulfillment of all that has been pointed to in these stories. And then there's a couple other small ways in this passage that Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment of all these Old Testament images. 
In verse 33, when Peter says, let me make three tents, that word for tent is the word for tabernacle in the Old Testament. The tabernacle is where God lived. So here we have Peter saying, let me build you a tabernacle. Saying, you must be divine. You must need a temple. And then finally, in verse 31, where it says that Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah about his departure, that word for departure is the word for exodus. And so Jesus is saying that he is about to accomplish another exodus for his people, just as God accomplished an exodus for his people in the Old Testament. And so in all these ways, and there's even more reflections of the Old Testament in this passage, this shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has been written before. He is the God who was to come. But then finally, and perhaps most clearly, the way we see that Jesus is truly divine in this passage is through God's own statement in verse 35. In verse 35, it says, A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. So God Himself speaks from the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Now again, each of those phrases could have a sermon of its own because the Son of God has a whole story through the Old Testament. The Chosen One of God has a whole story. And even that final word, listen to him. This is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses was talking to the people and he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so God is saying in this moment that this is the prophet. This is the one who has been promised from long ago. You shall listen to him. He is truly divine. And so again, in this way, we see that Jesus in his divinity is able to satisfy us. He's able to bring us into the presence of God as nothing else on earth can. Jesus and Jesus alone is this meeting place between God and man. And so what makes the person of Jesus truly the most wonderful and remarkable being to ever exist is this, that had God not become man, that even though only God can satisfy, we could never have been able to truly draw near into his presence. We would have been like those Israelites of old who when the cloud came down to earth, we would have had to exit. And so Jesus, being fully God and fully man, is able to minister to us the presence of God. The whole Old Testament bears this out. That God, who indeed is the satisfier of every human soul, God who is the great father and guide and lover and husband and satisfier and all of these things was not accessible to human beings. And yet, when Jesus comes and he is able to bring God into the flesh, into his human person, he is able to bring us into the presence of God. So in Jesus, the the fundamental thing that changed is that God, who was perfect but unapproachable, now becomes perfect and approachable. And even though Jesus in his very person was approachability, 
was approachable, this approachability reached its climax in Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection for us. You see, only three disciples were able to go up on that mountain with Jesus on that night. And yet what Jesus does in his death is he's able to remove all of the impurities from our hearts because he takes all of our sin upon himself. And he is able to die the punishment that they deserve and he is able to rise with imperishable life so that when we trust in him, all of our sins are wiped away, new life is put in us so that now we are able to ascend this mountain just like Peter and James and John were able to ascend, not through our own works, but through the work of Jesus Christ. So that whenever you fear that God's greatness and majesty and holiness may prevent you from drawing near to him, you can look to Jesus and you can know that you are able to draw near. And also, whenever you are worried that maybe you could never know God simply because of your humanity, because of your limited understanding and limited abilities, you can again look to Jesus and know that if Jesus, the one who is fully man, was able to draw into God's presence, then you yourself are able to draw near to God, into God's presence. Now, if you're wondering what to do with all this, let me just exhort you in two ways in closing. First, if this message leaves you wanting to know God more in Jesus Christ, to experience more of God's glory, if you have that desire in your heart, then the greatest victory has already been won. God has created new life in you, and his spirit is in you if you have that desire. And if you have that desire, then what you are to do is simply to listen to that desire. You are to follow in the path of that desire. In fact, Jeremiah 31, 34 even promises a day when each of us will have no need of teachers because God himself will teach each one of us individually. This is one of the great significant things about Jesus being God and man is that God is able to dwell in each one of your hearts. So fundamentally, you do not need me to tell you what to do to draw into the presence of God. God's Spirit himself ushers you into the presence of God. I am not your mediator. Jesus Christ is. And so you draw near to God through him. And so even though I am happy to, to guide you, to give advice when you ask and those sort of things, my fundamental job is not simply to tell you what to do, my fundamental job is to simply encourage and shepherd and cultivate those desires that God has already placed inside of you to recognize the work that God himself is doing. And so don't fear that if you're not following my guidance exactly or the guidance of some other Christian author or celebrity or some other pastor that you are doing the wrong thing, you are able to draw near to God yourself by the Spirit of God. So let your desires for God guide you forward into his word and into prayer. But secondly, and perhaps to contradict a little bit the advice that I just gave, the one practical piece of advice I would give is simply to strive always to draw near to Jesus as a human being, as a person whom you can personally know. 
Now, this should shape every moment of how we draw near to God and how we draw into God's presence. We don't come to God as an idea, right? I know we as Christians put a big emphasis on learning truth, and well, we should. God's word is truth. We are sanctified by the truth. And yet Jesus is not merely a true proposition. He is a person whom we are to know and to love. And so, me, whenever I strive to to draw near to God through prayer and through the word, my first concern is not what truth have I understood. My first concern is always, have I really seen Jesus? Do Do I really feel his presence? Do I know that he loves me? Do I know that he himself is welcoming me in? In fact, when I draw near to God, I do my best to to set it up as if I were going to meet someone for coffee, or if I were going to meet someone for dinner. I want to say, Lord, I just want to come and meet with you now. I want to hear you speaking to me. I want to speak with you. Lord, would you welcome me into your presence through Jesus Christ? And again, I want to know truth. And I want to believe right things. But most of all, I want to know Jesus personally. And I want to be welcomed into God's presence by the power and perfection of Jesus. And so parents also, as you are discipling your children, are you simply trying to make sure your children understand right things? Or are you teaching them that in Jesus Christ they really can know him? And they can interact with God on a personal level. They can ask him for things in prayer and they can see God answer prayer. They can be lonely and they can draw near to him and Jesus really is able to satisfy them in a way that only he can. So, beloved, my prayer for each of us and my prayer for my own self more and more day by day is that I would clearly apprehend the person of Jesus Christ. That he is both fully man and fully God. That he would not simply be an idea to me, that he would not simply be God to me, that he would not simply be human to me, but that he would be the whole fullness of who he is, that he would draw near to me as a human being as only a brother can, and that in doing that, I might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me to that great end right now? Heavenly Father, we truly do desire to see your glory. Lord, we know that it is ultimately only your glory that can satisfy our hearts. And we know that it is only in Jesus Christ where that glory actually becomes safe and actually becomes comprehensible. And so, God, would you reveal to us Jesus Christ more and more, I pray. Would you make each of us, Lord, passionate, devoted followers and lovers of Jesus Christ. Lord, would we not come to Jesus Christ simply looking for quick fixes or principles or rules, but would we come to him as a person whom we can know and love? So God, I pray that you would strengthen us all to this end right now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.